The visualizations Swamiji asks us to go through is not an easy one. The intention of this lesson is to learn to make happiness a deliberate choice and therefore to be able to face down any challenge to that happiness with the inner determination to keep our conscious elevated no matter what, consciousness elevated. So he suggests, and we'll just do this briefly here, but it's something you can practice at another time, that you think about some difficulty that you fear. And he suggests, don't, don't try to face into something overwhelming. The death of someone really close to you or complete loss of that which is important to you. Think rather of something less. Um, a, a difficulty, as he put it, that you think you could handle. Maybe the necessity to look for another job. Maybe the loss of the lease on your favorite apartment. Or a cut in salary. Or the failure to achieve some specific goal that you were hoping for. Something that you think would be a challenge but not an overwhelming one. And just see that difficulty right in front of you as if it were a fact. and feel how that reality affects you. Just sense in yourself the challenge to your willpower and to your equanimity. Now just as an exercise Try to feel on the deepest level that you can a sense of God's loving presence even with the gift of challenging circumstances and the own, your own inner response of determination and will to go forward in spite of it. Expand your vision so that this challenging event remains in front of you but make the context bigger. See it as a passing experience lasting months or even years but nonetheless in the context of a whole incarnation in the context of many incarnations its impact and importance may not lessen, but its proportion in your life when it slips into context. Imagine the passage of time. See how everything after a while becomes the background and not the foreground. Do your best to sense yourself as a completely independent reality from this and all circumstances in your life.
Swamiji says, I am no, I am not that circumstance. Whatever happens, I am complete and joyful in myself. So let us now affirm, I am complete in myself. Joy is my normal state of mind. No blow of outer circumstance can ever touch me. I am complete in myself. Joy is my normal state of mind. No blow of outer circumstance can ever touch me. I am complete in myself. Joy is my normal state of mind. No blow of outer circumstance can ever touch me. Om Peace. Amen. We're in Lesson 20, Joy in Business. I mean, we can actually see the end of this course because there's only 26 lessons, but there's still six more lessons. They won't necessarily take one week each. They may take longer. Some of them are long. These have been some sh- two more months going on with this, which is about what we've scheduled. He calls this, this is just about joy in life because business is just life, and he focuses this from the point of view of the expectation of what we think money will bring us and so on, but Really, the, the lesson offered by this lesson is one of the most profoundly important and true um, thoughts, understandings that we can gain. If we can gain just what's in this lesson, we can change our whole destiny, spiritually, materially, on every level. It's, it's so simple, what he says, but it, it totally encompasses everything. Um, Swamiji writes in this lesson about uh, you can see different attitudes in children. Some are oriented more toward being happy even from the moment they're born. Just a couple of days ago, I was in the company of a a baby, a little baby who's the baby of a dear friend, and the father, the baby's 10 months old, and the father just said simply, you know, he just almost never cries, and he just smiles and laughs all the time. It's a very good karma birth, very good parents, very just good, very good circumstance, very good karma child. But you can see he just has good karma. He just has this expectation of, of positive, a positive world. Um, my, uh, my husband David, when we had a, a horoscope done for him at one point, the astrologer said that one of the most auspicious periods of his life happened right when he was born for the first 18 years of his life. And the astrologer expressed that as, unfortunately, this auspicious period happened in your childhood, meaning you weren't old enough to make anything of it. Swami Kriyananda's response was, it was not at all unfortunate. That's extremely positive to have that happen because then your whole orientation of your life is positive. Because there's this, when you're in these auspicious astrological periods, often things simply flow. And whatever you do, there's just a flow. There's, you don't have this sense of working against obstacles. So when you grow up with this thought that if I put out energy, the results come, then you have that whole orientation towards your life. And your whole way of approaching the world is with that thought being true. And now we'll talk a little bit in here, but 
you know, expectations are, to a certain extent are self-fulfilling in that whatever, however we're oriented, we put out that kind of magnetism and like attracts like. There's that terrible statement in the Bible which just seems so unspeakably unfair, but nonetheless, Jesus says to those who have, more will be given, and to those who have not, even the little they have will be taken away. And you think, well, you know, that's not very democratic. That certainly is not really the liberal political agenda. But partly what Jesus is saying, he's simply speaking of the law of karma and the law of magnetism, that those who have uh, a sensation of lack, that no matter really even what comes to them, two things happen when there's always a feeling of lack, no matter how much is given to you. And also, when the magnetism you're putting out is one of loss and the expectation of loss, then very often that's the magnetism that you keep generating, and that is literally what happens. Even the little that you have is taken away from you. I have a friend who's a defense attorney, a criminal defense attorney, and his uh, work is with a lot of down-and-out people. He, he tends to see, see people when they're not at their best. And I had a friend who got himself into just a horrible legal jam um, with a, a accused of not paying literally tens of thousands of dollars in child support that he had actually paid, but his ex-wife d- did many nefarious things and managed to get a judgment against him, even though there was no basis for the judgment, and then... It jeopardized his driver's license, his passport, went on and on. It was a nightmare. It was one of those things that happened in the legal profession. So I was calling my friend to see if there was anything we could do to help. I mean, calling my friend the attorney to see if we could help my friend. And he said, well, have him come in and have him, of course, bring his bank records, you know, showing that he's paid this. I said, oh, I forgot to mention, he doesn't have any records because his house burned down. And the defense attorney, who's used to dealing with people down in the look, all he said was, yes, it would. <laughs> it was just such a funny response. Yes, of course. Of course this house would burn down. Because when you get into these kinds of cycles, sometimes they just keep rolling on and on. In other words, once we sort of decide that we're going to be troubled by the world, the world gives us lots of reasons to feel troubled, and sometimes these karmic periods really slide in. So what Swamiji's talking about here is not talking about, oh, when everything is good, be cheerful, because then you'll, you know, more good things will happen. And he's not also, he's also not talking in a naive way that, oh, just be happy and then everything will always come out right. Because everything does not always come out right. Even people who have very good karma sometimes have periods of time when that karma is not so good. Or when uh, difficult lessons have to be learned, which is not necessarily bad karma, it's just challenging. It may not be that, as Master put it, an easy life is not necessarily a victorious one. Merely because one never has to face obstacles does not really mean that everything is going great. It just means that you haven't yet sort of gotten to the point where the really heavy weights are going to be put on the machine, but sooner or later they have to. Because to be cheerful when everything is fine is better than being miserable even in those circumstances, but it's not the same as actually having the inner capacity to choose happiness. Swamiji talks, as he's mentioned before, about how He's been criticized because his songs are so happy. Someone said to him, how, can, how, you don't, uh, how do you know your songs are so happy? You've never suffered. And Swamiji's answer was, it's quite the contrary. It's because I have suffered and I've triumphed over suffering. I've earned the right to write optimistic and cheerful songs because my optimism has been proved 
in the cold light of day. Um, I was one of those people, I think, who was born with a positive attitude toward life. Um, I've always sort of been more on the sunny side than the depressive side of things, even from childhood. I was certainly one of those children Swamiji refers to who just kind of comes out thinking that everything's going to be okay. And in fact, um, the way Swami talks about it in Education for Life, dealing with working with children, he talks about every individual, and in that case he's talking about a teacher working with her, the students in her class, but every individual has what he calls a specific gravity, which is when everything becomes neutral, a, person, a person's karmic uh, reality is that they will they will rest at a certain point. You might say on the joy the joy barometer, so to speak. And people who have a karmic inclination to be depressed when everything is settled out, they'll sink. They'll become heavy. And then he talks about people who are sort of in the middle, who are ego active, but not, not necessarily either heavy or light, just intense and active. And then there's people who have a lighter consciousness who. When they come to rest, they come to rest in a rather buoyant, um, uplifted, positive expectation of life. And from the point of view that he wrote this, which was teachers trying to motivate students, you have to really know what a, a student's specific gravity is because they're motivated by different things and their realities are different. And of course, it's true for all of us, isn't it, that we know people who have different specific gravities who, who are naturally light, naturally sort of neutral, and or naturally heavy. Well, I feel that I was born with a fairly light consciousness, um, an inclination to come to rest in a fairly cheery position. And I felt that that carried me for a long time, really quite, quite a few years in my life. And then Ananda went through this experience, which I ended up, among others, was right in the very heart of, where we were, we were the subject of persecution through the courts. And we, we literally had 12 years of intense lawsuits that ended up nearly bankrupting um, the, the greater Ananda. Uh, we spent, had to spend $13 million. We ended up still with $3 million in debt, which even seven or nine years later, we're still, um, the greater Ananda is still carrying a little more than half of that. And the whole experience was ugly. I mean, I'd never in my life, I was raised in a very refined relatively refined way. I lived in refined circumstances, relatively speaking. And I just never met cruelty, unkindness, unscrupulousness, dishonesty. I know some people meet that in their own home right from the start, but I was fortunate not to. So we found ourselves in the course of this lawsuit, we weren't merely you know, caught in the legal process, which in itself is enough of a nightmare, but we were also in the hands of unscrupulous people. Um, self-interested judge, uh, completely um, unethical attorneys, opponents who had no regard for truth. And the legal system in America is designed for people to tell the truth. And, even, you know, I swear under penalty of perjury. And there, it's like it's built on a sense of personal honor that when a person says that, they mean it. And if they don't tell the truth, especially if attorneys don't tell the truth, it's very, the legal system is extremely cumbersome to deal with that. And we got caught in that. And because many lawyers these days have figured out, I mean, lawyers are always, have always been a little notorious for bending the truth, but one woman friend of mine who grew up in the house of an, her father was an attorney, her father never actually said to his children that he didn't tell the truth, 
because that wouldn't have been a good example, and I suspect he didn't. But sometimes he would say, and the jury accepted that. <laughs> and that would be sort of his way of saying, it was a, I made a, a solid try and the jury accepted it. So it wasn't actually bending the truth, just giving a slightly different perspective, and the jury accepted it. Well, at the end of that 12 years, um, which it was pretty ugly before it was over, and it was lots of long days and long nights and very discouraging, and, you know, half of it came out well for us and half of it really didn't. It didn't have anything to do with our reality. It just didn't come out well because the jury bought something they shouldn't have bought, basically. And... At the end of it, I had been exposed to a kind of underside of human nature that I'd never seen before and had had to spend a great deal of time in very uncongenial circumstances. And after it was all over, it was like, oh, hallelujah, it's all over. You know, more than a decade of this, it's all over. All we have left is a big debt, we can manage that. But now we have our freedom back, at least. We don't have to spend all our time in courts with these judges. And so then I waited to get happy. And it was actually, it was very interesting. I just found, okay, now it's over. And I started, I just waited to to sort of get buoyant in light again, as I had remembered being before the whole thing started. And I waited, and I waited. I actually waited over a year. And I never found that um, lightness to that extent returning. And then it occurred to me what is not untrue for a lot of people, which is there is... Um, the, the joy of innocence, and then there's the joy of wisdom. And the joy of innocence is the kind of thing that thinks, well, you know, I'm, here I am a senior in high school, and I'm king of the prom, and I'm going to, you know, conquer the world, I'm going to be rich, and all these things are going to happen, but none of it has ever happened. It's the kind of thing that causes an astonishingly, I would dare say, an appalling number of people to say that their happiest experience was their senior prom. It's an actual statistic of some sort from some kind of a poll. Although Master says in here that people cover the past with a mist of nostalgia that makes it seem like it was more attractive than it was. But in any case, um, then there is the joy that comes when one has really understood what life may bring you, but then has made a decision. And I saw myself, because I was about... I don't know how old I was, something in my 50s when all this happened, that I was standing at an extremely important crossroads. And I, I, I realized it was, a vi- it was a, an absolutely critical crossroad because either at that point I made a de- deliberate decision to maintain a light consciousness and a joyful consciousness no matter what, Or from that point, I would just begin, my consciousness would begin to sink, and that would be the end of it. And so I I had to make, at that point, a decision I'd never had to make before, which was that I choose happiness. Prior to that, I I always just came back to it. But now I had to choose it. Now I had to look at life and say, I'm not going to let these circumstances defeat me. Just because there's ugliness in this world, just because there's disappointment, just because really awful things can happen and that bad people can get away with things, you know, that there's no apparent justice, all kinds of things you don't want. But I, my consciousness is still under my control. Now, certainly that wasn't the first time I thought about it, but it was a much more subtle 
lesson coming around to that. And I, I remember Swamiji telling me, you know, 35 years ago, when I was working at Ananda and I, would, I tended to work in a certain frenzy, and uh, him essentially saying to me, you won't necessarily do more good by doing more. He said, because if your, if your magnetism is not joyful, then whatever you're doing will not have the magnetism of joy and it won't necessarily do any good. Because what will happen is your magnetism is really what communicates much more than your actual actions. That's why when I asked Swamiji once what uh, the mission of Ananda is, he's given many different answers to that question, but when I asked him once, his answer was to have fun. And it was a serious answer. Because what he was wanting us to understand is that as long as we do what we do with a joyful attitude, then we're, then we're doing good. And, and it's always been a rule for me ever since that time that whenever I can tell that I've lost the, um, dy- the dynamic joy of my magnetism, I have to do, I have to stop whatever I'm doing. And if I can stop for a long period of time, I'll stop. If I can only stop for a split second, I have to stop and deliberately choose that, st- that state of happiness again because otherwise nothing is ever going to work out. Now, Swamiji is writing this lesson in the context of material success. So he's also cautioning people not to become confused. And he, and he deals at, at great length in this lesson with the myth that there is some happiness-producing quality in money itself. And he spends some time just literally talking about money, physical dollar bills, and sort of how you feel about them. He doesn't talk about gold coins, which at least have, are more attractive. Gold and silver and precious jewels have a certain inherent magnetism, which is a little better. But nonetheless, you know, just talking about dollar bills, when I was very young, before I was 20, um, my friend and I, we bought a car. And... Uh, we bought it at a used car lot and we bought it with cash. It was about maybe $1,800 or something like that. I don't know why we had cash. Maybe we didn't like banks. We were pretty radical at that time. And uh, we bought it from this man who never took off his sunglasses and I think he actually had a cigar in his mouth. And he was just like, he was like from Central Casting, send me a used car dealer. And so they had sent a used car dealer. And so he, he showed us various used cars and then we finally picked out the car and his whole demeanor the whole time was just about as flat as you could be. Yeah, that's a good one. No, that's, a, that's better. This one will work. That one's okay. We can give you this kind of deal. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, well, if you want that one, yeah, that one will be good. Yeah, you can buy that one. It was just like, bleh, like that. And with his sunglasses on, you never saw his eyes or anything in the eye. He couldn't have had a cigar in his mouth the whole time. I think I've added that. I think he just had the sunglasses. It seems to go, but you know, it was as if he did have a cigar in his mouth. And then when it finally came time and we finally set the deal, we pulled out the cash money. You know, whoever pays with cash money, we pulled out cash money like this. The man took off his sunglasses, began to smile, became a totally different person, totally animated at the sight of the bills. It was just like, you know, it was so bizarre from my point of view because I'd never never known anyone who loved money. He actually loved money. It made him excited to see the actual cash. And he counted it and recounted it and held the bills in his hands. Oh, my God. 
you know. But that's what Swamiji is talking about. Now, that's a very extreme example. You know, the miser who goes down every night and counts his gold. But a lot of people have that thought in the mind that somehow that there's some inherent happiness-producing reality in having that money. And Swamiji talks about how money itself is a very flat object. That he, even, he talks about the art of money. I mean, the artwork on money is not really that pretty. It's not really that uplifting. It's not like a beautiful painting. I have in my house a, a, a couple of real paintings, you know, original paintings done by this Italian artist who's probably passed away now, Guido Odierna. He's a man that Swamiji um, discovered, made friends with, and he, he, the man would paint in Capri. In the, and then he, would, he lived in Rome, and he would go down to Capri and paint. And um, When we uh, had a, a, a non-dissenter in Rome, people made friends with him. And one year we were visiting in Rome in November, and um, Mr. Odierna had come back from his summer of painting in Capri, and he had all his canvases rolled up. And we went over to his apartment and he unrolled his canvases and let us choose among his paintings. I'm usually very sensible, but it was the closest I've ever come to just spending thousands of dollars I didn't have because his paintings were so beautiful. I just wanted every one of them. I wanted the really big ones, you know. I mean, they were, they were not cheap either. Hundreds or thousands of dollars, depending how big they were. They're not valued at what they should have been valued for. And he was also giving us a deal. So we bought a couple of them, which I have at home. One is, for those of you who've been in Chela Bhavan, you know it's the, the ocean scene that's above the altar right there. I, I can look at that every single day. I do look at that every day, and I never tire of looking at it, ever. It always uplifts me to look at it because of the consciousness of the artist and because it's a very fine painting. And it's a painting of the ocean, so it's sort of ever-changing. I mean, there, there, is, there are inherently beautiful things that because they're, they're hand-created, they have the capacity to uplift us. Uh, dollar bills are not that, as Swamiji describes. He describes that they're designed primarily so they can't be counterfeited. Or at least that's a big part of the design. You see whenever you hand a big bill now to someone, they'll hold it up to the light because there's a lot of counterfeit $100 bills, I guess, going around, and there's things they can see to tell whether they're, they're real or not. I mean, that's what you're working with. So you can't just look at it and find a consciousness in it. It's not handmade by any loving person. It just, it's just an inert thing. So then Swamiji just goes through this reality of, of, of what it is that we're really doing here. And he starts by saying, you know, we were put on this planet for a purpose. And the purpose is, is such an interesting one. The purpose is to experience perfect joy without end. The purpose is Satchitananda, ever-existing, ever-conscious, ever-new bliss. I mean, that is really remarkable to contemplate. A, a number of years ago when Swamiji first moved to India and started the Indian work there, it was like 2003, 2005, I don't remember when, it, 2003. Very soon after he came there, he wrote, he wrote this piece which is called The Way of Ananda Sanghis. And it was an attempt to define, really for the first time, what we believe. We've never had like a creed. And we have an abbreviated version of that in our program guide and the whole thing is on our website. It's worth, worth reading. We believe that this entire universe was created as an expression of Satchitananda. We believe that our purpose as conscious beings is to experience Satchitananda. That's ever existing, ever conscious, ever new joy. 
And he writes in here that scientists think about evolution as things have evolved because they've gotten more complex. And there's more variety and all this stuff is happening and you know, things keep mutating. But there's no sense of, of direction or purpose to it. It just keeps happening. But the saints tell us that we are here to evolve in, in our capacity to experience bliss. And that every other thing that we do is a means to that end and is a progressive development of our own ever-increasing self-awareness, passage through dim corridors of waking consciousness to emerge at last into perfect bliss. You know, self-awareness, which is to become more and more aware of the possibilities of our own self until that awareness becomes infinite and we see that self as Satchitananda. So, the fascinating thing about watching human development, and it's interesting, Swamiji goes at great length about how we have this relationship to money that's almost religious. And he talks about the mood in banks, which people joke about a lot, but it's, it's, really, it's really ridiculous when you think about it. You know, they're, 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 traditionally, they have these enormous high ceilings, and when we were looking for this church, before we found this church building, we looked at several banks, empty banks, as possible places to rent or to buy because they're temple-like. You know, they have very high ceilings, they have big columns, you know, they just have all the atmosphere of a sanctuary. I mean, when you really think about it, it's ridiculous. They're, they're hoarding coins and, and paper. You know, there's no need for those high ceilings and those great big lobbies, but it's like there's this kind of reverence in our culture for the money. Bizarre, isn't it? We just take it for granted, but that's really, that's, that's really what, what it's like, isn't it? Because the money represents for us the fulfillment of desire. And Swamiji, as I will talk about it, but then Swami also says, and I thought it was also just a very interesting point that he raised. There he is mocking the whole attitude about money and the loan officers and all of that. And then he says, I, I mean this kindly, however he puts it. He said, I'm not mocking any individual He said, it's the phenomenon itself that I find interesting. And I realized how often, you know, um, when one is really observing a phenomenon, a phenomenon may be ludicrous or questionable or unlaudable, but that doesn't mean that you're really down on the individuals engaged in it. It's the phenomenon itself that interests you. It was a very interesting distinction he was making. You know, some of his best friends are bankers and accountants. It's not like it's a bad thing. It's just this phenomenon around money that exists. But then he, he talks about how the soul, the, the incarnated soul, the egoic self, the jiva is really the right word, how we, 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 we move progressively through our own experience until we have a deeper and deeper understanding. And how... Um, and we were talking about this so much about in this course, you see all weaves together when I was talking about advertising, about how God puts us, moves us by our own desires forward on this path by, by inspiring us to want one thing or another and then inspiring us to put out the energy to try to attain it, not because it will fulfill us, but because we have to find out whether it will fulfill us or not. Last week I, I made a whole class out of having scratched the hood of David's car because it was such an interesting lesson to me between the difference of being told something and actually experiencing it. 
So you can, we can be told endlessly, you know, how much fulfillment there isn't in X, Y, or Z, but we will never believe it until we actually have it in our own hands and can actually experience it. And then uh, Swamiji explains to us how the first thing, when the, when the soul first begins to want things, the first thing we think about is pleasure, which is we, we project out, we want to experience through our senses and we, we imagine that having those sense experiences is going to give us what our heart is longing for. Recently, I and uh, Sharmila and Erica did Master's nine-day cleansing diet, which is a very um, positive thing for health and other things where you, have a, you eat a very restricted and clearly defined diet, which is mostly vegetables and citrus. And you do it for nine days. I joke because I say, sometimes I can complete master's diet in just three days. <laughs> I'm so fast, you know. <laughs> but this time we did all nine days. And it wasn't, as it happened, this time that difficult. I've done it, you know, maybe half a dozen times, maybe a little more than that over the years. Um, but it was so interesting to me because on this particular cycle of nine days, for some reason I was never hungry. And in fact... For day 10 and 11, I hardly ate. I just wasn't hungry. But I had a great desire to eat. And the, the, the experience of the difference between nutrition and sense pleasure was just... I've never, I'd never seen it quite so dramatically before. And I just, I just like the, the taste of food. I like the feeling of eating. You know, I like to sit down to a little meal and I like to taste it. I mean, I discovered a few years earlier that, you know, I had to, if you slow down, this is just as a subject of weight control I really figured out, that a lot of times I was literally eating twice what I needed because I didn't pay attention while I was eating it the first time and so I didn't have that feeling of enjoyment. And that if you pay a lot of attention to every bite that you eat, then you actually don't have to eat as many because you experience them all. And it's, 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 very, it's a very, actually, a serious method for c- controlling your weight, is to pay attention. Because then you get the sense pleasure that you're looking for. But the difficulty with sense pleasure, with anything that's pleasure-oriented, is that in this world of duality, this world is not designed just for pleasure. And that's one of the great mistakes that souls, individuals make on the great journey towards self-realization, is that we think because pleasure is possible... And because pleasure is so delightful that therefore we are meant to have nothing but pleasure. And so we seek it, you know, we seek it by food and we eat and eat and eat. But the unfortunate factor is that if we eat and eat and eat just for pleasure, our health disintegrates. And when we lose our health, we lose the capacity to even to eat because every time you eat it makes you sick or your body becomes so immensely overweight or you have the diseases of overindulgence or malnutrition, all the different things that can happen to us that we can't, darn it, just sort of grab that pleasure. Or we go after the pleasure of sexuality, which is a very common one that people go for. And, you know, things happen. We, too much overindulgence in sex can sometimes wreak havoc on your relationships. It can wreak havoc on your health. You know, uh, too much obsession with sexuality can just be so disruptive to so many higher values or Swami even describes the pleasure of inebriation gives way to um, a sickness and hangover. We just can never get pleasure and just hold it up here and have it always work. Isn't that so? 
Because even most pleasures cost money and eventually we have to go back to work the next morning, right? There's always this duality. The pleasure of a vacation is spoiled by the end of it. Every time David and I have had the opportunity to go on holiday or or adventuring somewhere, I'm always so happy that I'm also happy to come home. I mean, I thank God for that every day. And also, whenever I leave on any kind of a journey, especially long, a long journey that has a particular sparkle to it, I always walk out of my house. I, I, I stand in the, in the doorway, and I always see myself walking back in at the end of the journey. It's, and I don't do that out of any lack of enjoyment of what's coming, but I just always want to keep the perspective that nothing lasts. And so we're going off to do something that we're really going to enjoy, but pretty soon it will be over and we'll just be coming back. And, you know, there's just like there's many ways in which we can follow the natural inclination of the heart, but at the same time not become lost in false expectations. That somehow this is it, this is the one thing, this is the relationship. Once I have this baby, once I have this husband, once I have this house, then all the duality of the world will be gone and this pleasure is the one that's going to last. And we just don't find that. And after enough incarnations of that, and how many incarnations that is, depends a lot on us. Uh, Swamiji describes how we advance from the desire for pleasure to the desire for happiness. And happiness is sort of what we expect to get from those experiences, but we refine our understanding a little bit, and we start thinking about, about trying to be happy. And we want things in terms of how they're going to make us happy. Swami describes in here, and it's so interesting, how we take the, the, the happiness potential that's within us and we project it out to the material things around us and to the people around us. I had, I mean, this is even more ridiculous than scratching David's car hood, so please forgive me about the trivialness of this example. But it was so interesting to me I was with a friend, we went to a restaurant, we ordered a beet salad, a roasted beet salad, and we split it. So we each had the same plate in front of us. And there had also been on the menu sweet potatoes in one form or another. And in my mind, I had this thought that they were combined in this dish. So there was this big roasted thing, the color of a sweet potato, on my plate. And I cut it, and I ate it, and I ate several bites of it, and it just... It wasn't a sweet potato, but it was so confusing to me. I just kept eating it. I, you know, I had about four bites of this thing. Finally, I said to my friend, what is this? She said, it's a beet, you know. <laughs> what did you think? We ordered a beet salad. But it was like no place in my mind could I find that because I was so fixed on the idea that it wasn't that it was a sweet potato, and so I expected it to be a sweet potato. When it didn't fulfill that, I couldn't go anywhere else with it. But, you, you know, every so often, God shows you just by a little trick of the mind, it just, as a, this is a sidelight, but it's just talking about tricks of the mind. In the course of that legal battle that we were in for so long, um, I and a few others had to sit through some depositions with people who were really, really not telling the truth, really not telling the truth, And we had some speculation about, like, do they know that they're lying or have they switched things around so much in their mind? And and some people did a very peculiar thing, which is in circumstances in which they had played the villainous role, they actually switched it and that they were the heroic person and somebody else played the villainous role. Yeah, just really, really very interesting things. Um, 
all under penalty of perjury. But, and it just the whole thing was really confusing to me. And in the midst of that, I found myself once just describing something that had happened. And there was, in the story that I was describing, there was not necessarily a hero or a villain. It was something that I'd participated in. And I was several minutes into telling it. And I realized that my mind had reversed roles. And I, had, I was remembering the story as if I had played the, the opposite part from the part I actually played. And I was just totally committed to it. And then suddenly, I don't know what happened, but it just like a, it came to me suddenly that I'd switched it in memory. That I'd been present, but I had played the opposite part. Maybe, maybe one part was more heroic than the other, I don't recall. But it was stunning to me, but it just gave me this tremendous respect for how if we have any kind of emotional bias, we have to be very, very careful about what we think and know and do. Um, and that's why, well, this is a, an extension of that, but that's why satsang is so important on the spiritual path. Satsang being the company of fellow truth seekers. Because if we're all by ourselves and we don't have intimate, constant interaction with other um, noble-minded people, and if we have to rely only on our own perception of reality, it's a very, very dangerous world. You know, we have to constantly be in a vibration of truth-telling and upliftment. Whether or not, you know, we're confessing to someone or not is less important than we just be in that atmosphere so that we can hold to the, the vibration that we're seeking. Because expectations have such a, uh, an extraordinary way of confusing things. Um, what Swami was talking about here is because we are made of Satchitananda, you know, for years when Swamiji would talk, we would joke about it, that he, even when he was talking about a very mundane subject, he would always begin, we would call it, with the galactic gases. He would start whatever subject he was going to talk about by talking about infinite creation and how the world was manifested and how God, you know, did this and then slowly the gases began to cool and then you had molten matter and then the matter cooled and then you had earth and it would just be like, and then you'd finally get down, you know, to the subject at hand, which is, you know, how to weave a lanyard or whatever it might be. But over the years I've come to appreciate more and more how, how that really cosmic perspective actually is fundamental to the smallest thing that you do. And the, the, the biggest fundamental perspective is the first principle of the way of Ananda Sanghis, which is that everything that exists is a manifestation of Satchitananda, and so are we. And therefore, whatever we think we're experiencing of happiness or even pleasure is only a reflection of that Satchitananda within us. We would be incapable of experiencing any... I mean, bliss is the, is the truth of it, and we, we step it down. We, we, we draw out from that like a piece of taffy. We pull it out, and we make it sense pleasure because we've just taken that little bit that we've had and we've projected it out, and then we imagine that these things will give us this experience. I've joked with you, or you some of you may remember from many years ago when we changed the carpet in our apartment and we went toward this sort of theme of the golden color that our houses have had ever since. And we put out enormous effort somehow to get this right colored carpet, which was very hard to find. And we ordered it from the East Coast and it was delivered on a truck. And then finally the thing is laid in the apartment and finally there's the day 
when we have the carpet. <laughs> you know, there I was in the empty apartment with the carpet. You know, and I, and I tried really hard to feel this great sense of happiness over the carpet. You know, I sort of lay on the carpet, I looked at the carpet, I touched the carpet, and the carpet was, it's just, it was a dead thing. Carpet had no capacity to give me anything. I remember when we, one of the cycles when we redesigned our program guide and I was very involved in redesigning and we had this friend of ours come in. He did a beautiful job and finally came back from the printer and I was so excited by that thing. I'd worked so hard and it was so beautiful and I read it and I read it before I went to bed at night and I looked at it again when I first woke up. I kept it like there for like about three days and finally I sort of looked at it. I said to David, I said, I think I've squeezed about as much happiness out of this as I can ever squeeze from it, you know, and handed it back and took it out of my life and it just became a thing again. So it's like the more conscious we are, it's not to say that you can't enjoy. It, it, it's interesting when uh, Swamiji often buys very beautiful wedding gifts for people. And I've always been a little puzzled by it, but I, I can sort of see he's wanting to First of all, it's a memento that's meaningful. But uh, uh, he's also, you know, if, if we have this desire to experience from the outside, you know, we can enjoy it. You know, this is a beautiful piece of glass. This is a beautiful piece of art. This is a, uh, you know, a beautiful painting or something like that. But as long as we're aware of the fact that what's really happening is that in some way this is reminding us of our own inner spirit. That's why Swamiji often talks about handcrafted things. That, that things that are made by hand, by people of refined consciousness, have more capacity to, to actually uplift the spirit because they, they are imbued with the consciousness of the person who did them. If it's made in a factory somewhere in Vietnam by people who really couldn't care less and are just being given a tiny bit of money to buy rice, they're grateful to be able to buy rice. But what you have in your hand is not going to vibrate with their consciousness. Or if it does, it might not even vibrate very well. You know. But, but what, what then Swamiji writes about here is that once we go beyond just purely trying to live by our senses, we get this idea in our mind that what this is really about is happiness. And so we start trying to think in terms of things making us happy. But even that phrase, isn't that an interesting phrase? Oh, this will make them happy. This will make me happy. Oh, he'll be, it'll make him so happy to get this, won't it? It'll make him happy. Like he wasn't and now he will be. Because somehow there's some limiting condition to his happiness that this thing is supposed to compensate for. But at least when we get to happiness, we've begun to define what we're looking for on some level or another as some, somewhat inward. But still, the majority of people in the world, and ourselves too, much of the time, are always still thinking that it's the conditions of our lives that in one way or another influence our happiness. And the difficulty with that is it's a very simple difficulty. It doesn't work. If it worked, it would be just fine. I was talking to someone today actually about suicide. I mean, they weren't exactly contemplating it, but it, it lurked around the corners of that person's consciousness. I said, you know, it would be fine, but it won't do anything for you. If it worked, it would be just great, but it won't work. All that you will happen is basically you, go, you push the reset button and you just go back to where you were and you just have to run the whole tape again. And really, do you want to do that? You know, it's just a very unfortunate action because it just 
forces you to have to relive it all and be courageous enough to get through the critical moments instead of collapsing. But uh, um, this progression is what we're really trying to achieve. Let's take a bit of a break now and then we'll go on from there. Now what, what Yogananda, or what, Ma, uh, what Swamiji quotes of Master in this lesson is a statement that many of you have heard before. Conditions are always neutral. Whether you experience them as happy or sad depends upon the attitude of the mind. Now, you know, we can, um, how would I say, we can try to go around that truth and we can sort of modify it for our circumstances and we can say less. But sooner or later, and then we were just talking here just a few minutes ago about, you know, sooner or later, the future is now. It, and it's always, we're always experiencing now. We've had discussions here about time and timelessness and the sense of the eternal present. You know, that we can keep putting it off. Oh, later I'll get happy. Later, as soon as this is settled. This is just a little too much for me. Right now I'm justified in feeling like this. But it's a very important spiritual practice. And this is, again, where I was saying the most cosmic things are the most relevant. That we just have to understand that if we're ever going to be happy, if we're ever going to have joy, if we're ever going to experience bliss, if we're ever going to experience God, we have to just do it now. Just do it now. Because there is no other time but now. And there will always be some very good reason why it will be easier tomorrow. Except the more we give in to that lack of willingness to raise our vibration sufficiently to find the inner spirit of Satchitananda within us, the harder it is to do the next day too. The older we get, the more fixed we get in our habits. It's, it's just so much fun. It's really so much fun to train yourself on a minute-by-minute basis to just watch what your consciousness is doing. Swamiji says in here, if you're not used, because after happiness, of course, comes the understanding that we are made of bliss. And it isn't really just that we're happy because circumstances have made us happy. My family's safe. You know, I have my house. Therefore, I'm happy. Because nothing really takes away my happiness. We progress from that to realizing that what's always going on is that we are tapping into an inner state of bliss. And that all external circumstances of our lives are really not happening to us. They're just happening. Swamiji uses, uses the example of when he actually he was, he was in India and he fell. And he slipped and he fell and he hit his head on the corner of the desk and he really cut his head very badly and he bruised his face all up. He was all black and blue. He was actually getting ready to start some television programs and for the first you know, days of that they had to put all this makeup on him because he, looked, he was so blackened from this really bad fall he took. And he describes in here exactly what did happen. He fell right onto a rug he had just purchased. He couldn't get up because he was both dazed and a little bit too weak. Those were the first days in India, first year or two in India, and he was very unwell the whole time. So he's on the floor bleeding on his new rug, trying to keep the blood off the rug. And the first thing he wanted when they came in, but it wasn't like a miser's concern for the rug. It was just like, oh, let's not ruin the rug. Okay, can we just move me off the rug? But he was making fun. Like, here I am all smashed up, but, you know, let's, let's worry about the rug instead of worrying about me. But he did it to lighten the mood also. 
one of the stories that um, I have in my book about Swami Kriyananda is the story of Happy Winningham. Her name, she, I don't think that was the name she was given, but she was always called Happy. Happy Winningham lived at Ananda Village for many years. She contracted AIDS very early on, very early in the AIDS cycle, at a time when people died from it. And, and so she went through this period of six or seven years of increasing debilitation because of the AIDS and eventually died from it or from complications related to it. And one of the cycles she was in, she got spinal meningitis and really was really close to death. And she went into the hospital. And, um, she, she documented this account and I rewrote it for the book here. But she was in the hospital and she was going through the temple of light, going through the tunnel of light. And she, she, they couldn't find veins to do an IV and they couldn't find her insurance card. And I mean, it was just, and there were balloons in the room and the balloons looked like monsters to her. And it was just a, a very strange circumstance. And people were oming in her ear thinking she was about to die. And um, very, very dramatic. And she really thought she was going to die. She said she had been sort of death and return several times, so she knew where she was. And then Swami Kriyananda came in, and because she was dying, her extremities were turning purple, I think, or because of the, the change. And so her nose was purple, and her hands and her feet, everything was getting really strange, and everybody was very, very tense. And Swamiji comes in, Swami Kriyananda comes in, and he sees her in the hospital bed going through all of this, and he says, Happy! you look just like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> and she said somewhere, and she was in a lot of pain too, out of all of this, she sort of just looked over at him and began to laugh because it was just such a completely ludicrous remark in the context. And she laughed and he laughed and she said, and the whole magnetism of the entire room just shifted. And then suddenly everything began to work and the doctors knew what to do and they got the IV started and she came back from the tunnel of light. She lived several more years to her benefit. You know, just like, let's just lighten the mood here. Just because you're dying, we don't all have to panic. You do. You look like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. It's worth noting at this point. Let's go out with a happy thought. Why not? And so what he's offering here is a very profound truth. Swami Kriyananda took two nationwide tours in 1978. I think he did both of them in 78, 79 maybe. And it was all in 78. He went in the spring and the fall. And it was called The Practice of Joy. And he traveled all over the country and he gave seminar after seminar after seminar on the concept of the practice of joy. And what he was really trying to say is that it's not something that just happens to you. It's a deliberate decision we make. And it's a deliberate decision to identify and to experience at all times our true nature. And what what I was starting to say with this is, it's a marvelously fun, extremely interesting exercise to, to constantly remind ourselves that no matter how justified we feel in, in not being joyful, we're wrong. Because we are always... We, we never cease to be pure Satchitananda. And if we have forgotten that, it hasn't changed that at all. There's no circumstances of our life in which that isn't present. You know, all of us have things that we fear. I, I have this, I, I worry about being in prison. I worry about being tortured. I worry about concentration camp kind of conditions. 
I worry about physical pain. I mean, I don't worry about it like every day. But, but when you hold those things up to me, they make me plenty nervous. You know, it's not like um, I, certainly, and I'm sure most of us feel this way, can contemplate certain conditions with complete equanimity. But much of what we allow to steal our happiness is really so trivial. Really. And it's only a habit of the mind to allow our energy to be distracted from it. And now, in terms of this lesson, which is talking about earning money, Swamiji is just raising the obvious point here, which is, if we're just grim about doing this, we have terrible magnetism, and we have no positive experience, and we're not likely to generate prosperity through an attitude of deprivation. And if we're doing whatever we're doing with the thought that this is going to generate prosperity, but we're not doing it with the consciousness of abundance, which is what it really comes down to, because what is it that we're trying to have abundantly at all times? We're trying to have this inner experience of happiness or bliss or whatever we call it. And he said, so many people imagine that when some certain condition is fulfilled, then I will have my joy. And either they never live long enough to see it, or when they finally get there, it just it's ephemeral because it's only a projection of a consciousness they don't have. You know, if you're unhappy, you see people sometimes in beautiful resorts, on beautiful vacations, and they're arguing with their spouses, and their kids are screaming. And, you know, it's just like, where is the happiness in this? Because the happiness has never been generated prior to that. And, and the other side of this, which is just such a marvelous practice, is that therefore... Everything can be fun. One of the experiences why I've always enjoyed being in the presence of Swami Kriyananda at any time from back in 1971 when I first met him is because of his inner state of joy. No matter what we were doing, where we were doing it, or what was happening, I always felt I was at the center of the universe. And so there was no place else that I would want to be except right there. And whatever it was, it was always enjoyable no matter how unenjoyable it was. I was just talking about this lawsuit, which was really horrible, just totally horrible. But we laughed so much of the time through that whole thing. I mean, we would have a terrible morning in court and we'd go out to lunch and then suddenly we'd just be telling jokes and just laughing and then we'd have a horrible afternoon and then we'd go home and have dinner and we'd watch a funny movie. And I mean, it was very rare, very rare that a whole day would go by with, I don't just mean a sort of wan smile, but just a complete forgetfulness because what could really touch us? And I used to have this image in my mind during that lawsuit because we were, you know, we, we were afraid we would lose everything financially. That's what you're in great danger of. We weren't under criminal charges. It was just civil suits. So civil suits are about money. Nobody could be put in prison. And so um, we don't even own our community here. We just lease it. We own this building, but I kept having this picture that we would lose everything. And, and just to help not be afraid of that, just as he says here in the, um, the visualization that we did during meditation, imagine something that you might have to deal with. So I imagine that we might have to deal with that we could no longer have our community. Maybe we would no longer even have our church. And I always had this picture of, you know, a crowd of us, you know, the core group of friends or everybody who wanted to, and we were always standing on the, on the street right in front of this building or on the street right in front of our community. And somehow we reverted back into a kind of 1940s. We would all be dressed sort of like 
um, the refugees, European Jews fleeing from Europe. That's probably just my picture. And we were always holding, you know, these, these old-fashioned suitcases. And we were all just standing out there in these old-fashioned, with these old-fashioned suitcases standing together on the road, very cheerfully just saying, okay, where will we go? <laughs> and then we'd all just walk down the road together. And it was like, that wouldn't be so bad, you know? We'll just walk down the road together with our little suitcases and who cares? Because nothing could take away our Satchitananda. Nothing could take away Satchitananda, not ours. Because really nothing can. And when I do, it crosses my mind to worry about physical pain or incarceration. I try to just take myself, you know, back down. We watched a movie about Nelson Mandela um, just the other yesterday or Sunday, Invictus, which is a very nicely done movie. And among that, they show you Robbins Island where he spent such a long period of time. Um, The movie's all done about the national rugby team in South Africa. It's a true story. And it it was very clever to give you a perspective on the man through an odd, an original filter. But they showed you the cell where he was on Robbins Island for 30 years. And they have the man who's looking at it stretch his arms so that you'll be sure and realize that this cell is like that wide. And the man comments that he's just contemplating what kind of a man could spend 30 years in that cell and then come out wanting to forgive the people who put him there. So I picture myself 30 years in one of those cells and you think, what would I do with my, what I do with my consciousness? Well, what you would have to do with your consciousness and what you, is what you had been doing before you got there. Because that would be all you'd have when you got there. So if today, when the milk has gone sour, or somebody was very unkind to me, or I have way too much to do, and nobody appreciates all the hard work that I do and all the good work that I do, and there they are being like that again, I ask myself, you know, what would you do if something really bad happened to you? If you allow yourself to be taken off-center by something so trivial... What's going to happen when something really bad happens? One, you have to practice when it's easier. And two, you don't want God to be, you know, just keep loading the dice against you because you can't get this lesson. But then you see it's so much fun. You just stop. And sometimes you have to take action. You know, you have to take yourself out to breakfast and read the newspaper for a while. You have to just change change the context as long as you can do that. Here's another interesting point on this, and maybe this is where we'll end. Very interesting book written, you know, 40 years ago when people were first starting to think about conscious dying. Stephen and Andrea Levine did very, very good work with um, what's now the hospice movement and all of this. They were pioneers in that. He wrote a book, Stephen Levine wrote a book called Who Dies? You know, it was spiritually based. He was a, is a spiritual man. I presume he's still living. He's probably about my age. And he talked about the process of dying, and he talked about when a person's on their deathbed at the end of their life, that often a person just before their life ends, they'll often go through a period of intense restlessness where they can just, they just become almost frantic being uh, bound to their bed. Not everyone, but almost everyone. And this is what he described. He said, we are accustomed to being able to, when our consciousness is disturbed, to take some physical action in order to change it. Oh, I'm bored. I'll get up and see what's in the refrigerator. Oh, I'm tired of being in this house. I think I'll go take a walk. 
Oh, I'm lonely. I'm going to call a friend and we're going to talk. But in other words, because we can move our bodies around and because we still have all our faculties, when there's a disturbance of consciousness, we solve it in some external way rather than solving it only on the level of consciousness. Now, of course, this is our state of awareness. This is the life we've been given. We're not hermits in a cave. We, are, we have been given a relationship to the world. So I'm not saying it's such a bad thing. But he says, but then when your body begins to die and you find yourself unable to make your body do what you want it to do, um, when we have a problem of consciousness, we have nothing to counter it except consciousness. And he said, there's often just this period of tremendous agitation. Usually what happens then after that is peace. And, and if you've been with people when they die, sometimes you'll go through that. Just be very agitated and then somehow something will come in and they will be elevated enough to recognize, oh, I can just relax into my consciousness. That's all I ever do need. But I often think about that when something agitates me, that I do my best to solve the problems of consciousness on the level of consciousness. And, of course, I don't hesitate to take whatever action is required, but I try to do it as consciously as possible. Because, you see, the more we build that in, the more... Um, well, Swamiji touches it. He, he hints at it here by quoting Patanjali. When we become perfect in non-covetousness, and non-covetousness means to be perfectly content with whatever we have and not to imagine that we need something in other words to be content within our consciousness and that doesn't mean that we don't act because what he's talking about is nishkam karma which is to act without desire for the fruits of the action and he puts this I want to be sure and touch this he um, we act with nishkam karma we are not in a state of envy and greed and covetousness and then Patanjali says when we practice that perfectly all jewels will come to us. Meaning we'll be in such harmony with the universe that everything else we want anyway will come. And and, in other words, it's the best way to have what you want is to be content within yourself because then you're in harmony. And then he has that marvelous statement in there. And then we work because it's honorable to work. And sloth is not honorable. And we don't work for money although we may need and get money and enjoy what we can do in a generous way with the money we earn, but we work because it's honorable to work. And isn't that a wonderful phrase? And, and that's, we're not working for any particular end. We're working as a kshatriya. Kshatriya does what's right because kshatriya knows that satisfaction comes from doing what's right and work is honorable. And, and to, 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 to desire not to work and just to have without putting out effort is not honorable. And it's the same with spiritual awareness. You know, we have to work for it because that's the honorable way we get it. We don't get it just by doing nothing. Beautiful ideas, aren't they? And you see how every day they are? You know, just every day. And so that's when he says, when you go to work, get up in the morning and resolve, I'm going to be happy today working. It's an honorable thing to work. And I'm going to go into my job and I'm going to be happy at my job because what am I waiting for? And what do I think is going to happen someday that's suddenly going to make me happy? If I don't find it right now, where is it to be found? Yogananda put it, 
Fight the battle, fight and win the battle of joy right where you are standing. I love that. Right where you are standing, win the battle, fight and win the battle for joy. And that's also the secret of prosperity because once that magnetism begins to flow, then everything else follows from it as well. Because we no longer are blinded by our confusion and our expectations. We can live in the reality of things. All the other elements that Swamiji has given us through these 19 lessons that came before all become possible through the practice of joy. Okay? We'll go on to lesson 21 next week.